Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And today we go somewhere to the south. We're going to be talking Charlotte, to... Charlotte, I think. Isn't it? Is it Charlotte? I didn't catch where she is from, but I, I know she's not from there. She moved south to beat the weather. Somewhere far away from the nor'easters that, that smash yeah. Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're going to be talking with Amanda Shirley. And this interview took a surprising turn about two-thirds of the way through. <laughs> yeah. Also, it kept going. The interview kept going. I, so just just pretend we're having an interview with three different people that just all happened to be one person. Yeah. So we, we go all sorts of places. We talk about violins and we talk about massages. We talk about... Even Back to the Future gets mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I mean, for me, it was exciting because somebody who went to one of my alma maters and somebody who is studied music and, and went to the level of, you know, uh, incredible gifts and talks about the Paganini stuff. I mean, it, it, this went full geek. And then, yeah. and then we took a turn towards entrepreneurship and probably one of the coolest product ideas that I've heard of, or maybe I just personally would run out and buy one of these things if it was available. Yeah, the operative word being run. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's let's go listen to this interview with Amanda Shirley. Nice to talk with you, Amanda. I have to tell the audience you're kind of dressed welcoming fall which I've been doing lately, kind of, you know, putting on some sweaters, some sweatshirts, some warmer things, even a couple of days, kind of a stocking cap. What are your feelings about, I guess, the uh, fall and winter kind of coming? I reject awareness of winter's coming. (laughs) I moved south in May, and so I'll have limited exposure. And... I probably have a pair of riding boots for every day of fall. Love that. It's a gross exaggeration, but something along those lines. I love that. Um, I don't have any riding boots, but I'm going to Google that right after we're done here. (laughs) (laughs) So really nice to talk with you. We'd love to kind of start with, yeah, let's go towards riding boots. (laughs) As As a little kid. Were you the fashionable one? Uh, did you grow up kind of having cool riding boots uh, for every g- big occasion? Or what, what was your childhood like? Oh, well, there was, there was a famous pair of riding boots when I was a little girl. They were cowboy boots, actually, because a riding boot goes up to the knee. A cowboy boot goes, like, through the calf. And they were black with a pointed toe with a red shaft in the calf. My mom had purchased them for me in two sizes. And I lived for those boots. And when we went to the mall, sometimes I would opt to wear a tutu in those boots. And my mother, you know, gave me that opportunity. And my last memory of those boots is when my cat, who loved us all dearly, put a live mole in it and I put my foot in. Amanda, 
I got my first pair of cowboy boots when I moved to Texas about five years ago. And I love them. They're awesome. And so we go dancing, country dancing in Texas, big thing. So boot scooting and all that sort of stuff, it's great. So somebody was riding boots, that's going up a step further. So I'm super impressed. It's mostly a fashion statement, but I, I did start horseback riding, not competitively, but I did start English saddle horseback riding at a young age out on the east end of Long Island. Mm-hmm. So I feel I'm allowed to own that I wear riding boots. Absolutely. You've earned that right. Love that. <laughs> so speaking of Long Island and speaking of another thing in common we have, which is Stony Brook University, I got my PhD there. And I know you studied music there also. So we know a lot of the same people. I got my PhD in music. So it's a lovely place. It has, uh, if people want to Google it, um, a couple of hot dogs on sticks for a, for a hospital. <laughs> it's a beautiful hospital, I have to say. They've done a lot of things with it, but it, it is two buildings on sticks, which is, is pretty amazing. So the work you're doing now, what I think is one of the most thing, uh, most fun things about uh, sort of just digging around about what you're doing is that there are a whole lot of people involved with uh, the nonprofit that that you represent, and then there's this this one spot on the website that says staff, and there's just your picture. <laughs> so it seems like you do a whole lot of work for a whole lot of people. So I want to start there, and then we can get into what the what the amazing work is. But I'm curious how you ended up there. Hmm. So, yes, I saw you did your PhD at Stony Brook. I'm not sure our paths crossed. I'm actually a second generation. My mom was valedictorian uh, in psychology, and I attended her graduation and spent a very large amount of my childhood in the psychology building. Wow. So way back in the day, does she remember Janis Joplin and the Who and the Grateful Dead and all that, and Muddy Fields? Well, I have a young mother, and I have seen the Who with her twice. Okay. (laughs) Nice. So I was training to be a classical violinist, and like many professional musicians, we're really just struggling with our humanitarianism. And so I had that existential crisis that most have, which is, what am I going to do with my life if I become a violinist, but I can't stop this thing that has taken me over? And so um, between journalism and music, I went with music really because I was aware that, well, one, I wanted to keep playing. Two, I knew I would pursue an advanced degree. So I knew that it could wound up being a foundational thing. And related with that would be the third piece, which is the cognitive development and the emotional development going on at that age in your life is really important. And I was aware that training to be a violinist would help cultivate certain things in myself, softness, connection, uh, analytics, you know, listening, communicating, so on. So I, I did that. But the whole time I had my foot in these other areas that turned out to be nonprofit administration, you know, which is what happens when you're in the arts because it is the public and the third sector. And so you wind up in this murky area. And I was on a lot of boards and committees by invitation when I was in the music program and I wound up serving as the undergraduate representative for the arts entrepreneurship 
committee, and we were discussing how to really work with the musicians who we had all been taught, practice for long enough, and you'll get the job, which does not change the economy, and it does not change the marketplace. So we were really looking at what are the challenges that musicians are going to truly face, and where are the deficiencies within the mindset of the musician that we can help to bridge through a joint program. And through that, and I was working with the music library, our budget had gone to zero during one of the many sequestrations. And from my view, it's, well, this is a world-class program. We're going to lose our doctoral students if we don't have a world-class library. So we were working on some macro and micro problems. When I started looking at doing an MBA or pursuing my advanced degree, I realized that I belonged in the nonprofit sector. And I just didn't see, I didn't see a reason to, to continue pursuing another degree that says to other people that I know how to play my violin. And I was teaching like we all do. We all start that side hustle because being a musician is expensive and you don't make much. And so I was teaching and I didn't think I was going to be all that into it. And not only did I love it, but I was great at it. And my kids were phenomenal. And I fell in love with the practice. I fell in love with being in a position to help children understand things that were so conceptual or distant. That was hard to walk away from too. And somehow in my nonprofit journey, which really began when I was about 19 years old, helping to found symphonies and being involved in the boards. And then, you know, the work that I did at Stony Brook, I kept finding myself back in the space of education or humanitarianism. So fast forward, you know, 15 years or so later from my first time touching nonprofit world. And I work in equity and access and education. And I've been able to apply, and this is not my first um, foray in equity and access and education, but I'm able to apply a lot of my past as a violinist traveling around the world and going into communities and working directly with children while also drawing from my experience directly being a teacher for 10 years. I was teaching, I think, 35 children a week for nearly 10 years. And so here I am. I'm the executive director of a grassroots nonprofit, and we work with children in six countries. And it says that I'm the sole staff. I did hire someone a few weeks ago, but the program officers are all employees. But they're, they're agents, so I don't title them as staff. And we work directly in the community. And so we have program officers who are working directly in schools with principals. And I work at the systems level, and I manage them as a team. So one thing, thank you for, for that sort of uh, setting. So with that whole, I don't want to call it a slippery slope, because it's it's... Uh, music is also a nonprofit <laughs> industry. Uh, just uh, musicians figure that out in their own lives, <laughs> right? Um, so, but I'm curious what your journey was from artistic and um, high-minded, like me. I mean, uh, uh, um, um, ideological, um, wanting the world to be a better place. Uh, you know, big thinking, beautiful sounds. Uh, to realizing that it's about money, 
even in the nonprofit sector? How do you get money? And I know you have a degree from Columbia and talking and thinking about all of that. How is that journey going from this just beautiful world that I was also in of the arts? And then all of a sudden you're in the world of, ooh, I gotta go get some money. Well, I think that some of it begins with your spiritual relationship with money and around money. Money is a vehicle. Some people acquire a lot of it for things and some people acquire it for a sense of freedom. There's a great quote that I will probably misquote and it comes from Rockefeller, which is that philanthropy is is a privilege, not an obligation. And so, you know, so much of the, the understanding of philanthropy starts in the arts. That arts entrepreneurship issue of, well, I'm, I'm a phenomenal violinist. Why can't I get a job? Well, really, there was only a very short period of time when you could. And watching the European Union's economy crash and the impact that that has had on the arts and the frustrating conversations with our colleagues our international colleagues who come into conflict with our mindset of, I'm so frustrated because the money is gone for this. And as Americans, we're like, what do you mean? It was never there. And so the European system of the state providing financing for public arts pervasively ceased to exist but the memory is so short because really it was only within the last century that arts stopped being something that was paid for through the courts, that was inaccessible. So you could go to church or you could, you know, be friends with the Archduke. So it was privatized before. I have to put like a semicolon there because that was such a great line. Will you say it again? That was just, I I, I want to dwell on that for a minute. We got to do like a little punctuation (laughs) the arts were privatized and it was it was funded through the aristocracy and so you could access it through the churches which you with a phd and you know we we both know that the stony brook music history program does not leave a stone unturned and so depends on which church you went to and what time it was in life, but you could access music through the churches or you could access music through the courts, the aristocratic courts. And I got very interested in being in the nonprofit sector related with some of those philosophical issues. So some of it was I wanted to, you know, I had this ideal of I'd like to make the arts accessible. We all go in and out of that. I actually started a nonprofit and I was working on that. And then another artist stole it from me and took off with it, which happens so often in the industry because people are desperate. And I was like, well, just another example of why I don't want to do this. But the idea that the arts are, I guess you could say hoarded sometimes, really troubles me because when you are drinking it in every day all the time, you understand what it does to you. And we we have an idea of what it could do for society if only society would consume it. And so then you start to go down the path of what are all the things that allow us to be a more compassionate, more connected, grounded, generous, empathic society? 
And so there's the arts, there's access to education, there's nourishment, there's all these different things. And they all come back to who has access to them and who does not. And you, you keep following that and it becomes about power and systems. And you can get really nihilistic, which I'm very good at doing. And you can assume the worst, which is that those systems want to keep that power for themselves. You can also be optimistic at moments and allow yourself to take in the awareness that not necessarily, not everybody is evil. And sometimes the systems can't stop what they're doing, even though they want to. And the reality is somewhere in between. And so then it becomes, what can I do to be an agent of change? And when you come from the music world, I think for me, I've come to feel that I wish there were more artists who were in positions of business because there's a sensitivity that an artist has and a different perspective because our brains are wired differently because we've been playing music our whole lives. I, I don't need to go into the clinical and neurological aspects of how our brains are wired differently, but they are. So I sat, I was in the graduate symphony <laughs> and I used to sit at the Stony Brook you know, rehearsals, and those are several hours a day, every day of the week or four days out of the week for two weeks in a row. And I used to sit on the stage and sometimes just sit there really thinking about some big world problems. And then I would think, why is nobody doing anything about it? And then I would listen to a lot of my peers and I would realize it's because they really wanted that job in that orchestra. And so I recognized that I had a call to action coming from within myself and I made the leap. But the question that you asked was about how do you then relate to going from this artistry world to the money world. And you see how much people have when there is money to provide it. And so in the arts, ticket sales don't cover the price of a concert. Ticket sales help to subsidize. Philanthropy is subsidizing the ticket price. And you start your things. We all wind up gigging. We all wind up wanting to start some community arts organization, something like that. And then you learn that you have to start building partnerships. But it's not just about money. Money brings awareness because if somebody puts their name on something, you're negotiating back and forth. It really becomes a game about sponsorship and philanthropic sponsorship and branding. And then you get this unique opportunity to meet money with vision and you can speak with people and try to understand something that matters to them. And now that they've opened up some of their finances, they're actually open to listening a bit and you can take their input in, they become invested partners. And over time, what you can do is you can help to push the needle to get the corporate world more invested in the public sector and to have more of a hand. And over time, that can fundamentally shape a community. So that's where I live. I live at this place where there is money in all sorts of areas. And I believe that if that money could be distributed in a philanthropic manner, that local community winds up benefiting the person who's giving benefits, but society as a whole benefits. And that is what I aim to help others to connect with. So there's a, a very interesting dichotomy or, or balance of power 
in the non-profit world. I'm thinking particularly about something that I know a little, very little about, which is the Austin Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. We support it. We bought season tickets. We get the brochure to every program we go to and there's our names in the sponsorship list and that's a real ego boost. We look for it every time. Back to the Future, right, live? Yeah, we just saw Back to the Future where they were playing live. That was Saturday night. But when you look at the sponsors, they are all, I mean, there's big sponsors and then there's the mid-level people. But the they're wealthy people or they're people with significant amounts of or significant capability to be philanthropic. So they can give three or five or ten thousand dollars and it doesn't really change their lifestyle at all. And in doing that, they're supporting the artists themselves who are not making a lot of money, but the Austin Symphony Orchestra gives away most of its skill. I mean, it goes and does concerts for children for free. Mm-hmm. It does amazing things within the area. And mm-hmm. without the money coming from people who have accumulated a degree of wealth, none of that could actually happen. And yet we keep musicians who do the performances relatively poor. It just seems totally the wrong way around. There has to be a for-profit option that helps the artists themselves become remunerated for the value that they bring supported by others. I, I, I'm struggling to understand what that is, but it just feels unbalanced right now. So there's, there's two things there. So one is the earned income model. So a ticket sale is an earned income model. Mm-hmm. You are selling something and um, you can have a percentage of your total revenue be earned income and have it be untaxed which allows it to stay in the public sector kind right. of realm. And then if you make more than that, it's taxed, which is a good problem to have. And so there are different ways that earned income models can, can work, you know, renting out the concert hall, you know, depending on the ownership, which is separate from the issue of artist wages. And I think that I've really come to believe that it's not just the music world this is the issue of, of value and wages everywhere, but it's so difficult in the music world. I mean, there were times where I was spending thousands of dollars a month on massage therapy because the Vinyovsky concerto was putting a knot in my neck mm-hmm. um, because I don't have the shoulder twitch natural to me, which you either have or you don't. And so I was having to do Paganini to develop the reflex and the impulse, which was putting a knot. And so the cost of self-care and maintenance, even for an artist, is so high. There's a very huge disconnect between the realities. You know, professors don't make a tremendous amount of money. As a music teacher, you have to teach so many students to be able to make a good wage. You know, you're doing it in cash a lot of the time for your survival. But the symphonic players are making, you know, thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year, and they're really just using that position at some point to market themselves as a teacher to make enough money. The philanthropic side is con- so that's a wage issue. We've got a we've got a priorities question as a country. How much are we willing to pay to consume art? Then there's and and musicians are not meant to be martyrs. 
Then there's the other side of it, which is the philanthropic component. And so I think that I'm not sure where I land on this in the unions. I'm a very, I was raised in the union, but I'm not sure that this is necessarily the union's challenge as much as it is the president of the symphonies and their ability to take on the CFOs and the boards. Because I believe that the philanthropists would pay more to ensure that their artists are well cared for. In my work with individuals who are making philanthropic contributions, they just want to help and they really care. Sure, it's actually good for their finances to be charitable, but I really see that they care. And if we don't tell them what matters and why it matters, these very intelligent people who are very good with money can't do anything to help. And that public outreach that the orchestras are doing and going into the schools and this, that's coming from programmatic funding. So the individual donors are by and large providing support for the orchestral series or for the general fund. Programmatic funding is separate and often a foundation will be providing for that. And there's a lot of value that everybody's getting back. Property values go up. It attracts talent to come and work in hospitals and universities, but also big law firm buys up season tickets by paying ten or $20,000 a year. What they're doing is they're sending their associates to go to the concerts. They are aware that their associates are going to be more healthy and well-balanced by having them attend those concerts. But ultimately, the associates are networking because they're going to the cocktail. So the value is tremendous. And the question is, who's going to advocate for the wages of the artist? And it's really tricky because the union's involved, the CFO is involved, the president's involved. And ultimately, who's going to put their foot down and say, we need an additional $2 million a year so that we can increase wages $20,000 a person because our artists are getting burnt out and their body is their insurance policy. It's wild. <laughs> uh, Amanda, we could talk to you for hours. I, I think I, I would I would be comfortable with a, maybe a three or four hour interview and we just pepper you with questions. Uh, <laughs> But I, so we want to kind of wrap up. We like to keep these fairly short. And I wanted to actually kind of throw a curveball slightly. Certainly um, love to hear more about, you know, where people can go and find out more about uh, your role as you know executive director and about the literacy work you're doing and where they can find you. But also, I'm super curious about your paused entrepreneurship, those hats, because I <laughs> kind of obsessed with those when I started digging and and so meaningful and yet such a small thing anyway but I'm sure COVID you know put a wrench in those plans but what I was going to say is a sort of entrepreneurial ending saying listen I'm the executive director of this but also I'm an entrepreneur because you're you are and kind of where you're headed next and where people can follow you so I'm the ED of an international NGO and my primary focus professionally is to ensure that tens of thousands of children in the Eastern Caribbean have access to new books and literacy support. And it is direct service, but I have the distinct privilege of advocating for these children 
with UNICEF, UNESCO, Global Partners for Education, USAID, and I work alongside the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, which um, I would liken to the EU of the Caribbean. So we're working at a serious systems level and take note of the OECS because I believe they are they are an example that a lot of international governments could be learning from and how to address societal problems and work collaboratively in service of humans and society. So anybody who is interested in how literacy empowers freedom and democratization of, of thought and opportunity, I would invite them to go to handsacrossthesea.org and reach out to me to learn more. The hats, we have a patent that is about to be solidified. Um, and that patent entitles us to the technique of knitting anything seamlessly using reflective yarn. And do you have a do you have a verb around that? Is it like reflectifying the hat? <laughs> no. But I'm gonna take that tip to my partner and see if we can come up with a verb. So it's look good, feel good, be seen is the idea. So um, my partner is a runner and he had a friend who was out jogging at dusk and got hit by a car and died. And this is an issue, but people are also becoming more sensory affected and knitting technology is advancing unbelievably quickly. M.M. Lafleur took off because they're a whole garment knit. And I can tell you every single brand name that I go and I look at their reflective stuff and I know why it's not working. I know why they went with that design style to make it chunky where the things are flying out. It's because this technique is unbelievably difficult and knitwear is a money pit. So I found a person and got her on board and I, I really think that we have the dream team and we did small batch production and ran serious tight simulations and we got the patent pending and it's just about done. And so what we're going to look to do is hopefully direct sales to people, you know, business to consumer of these hats that have been created to provide runners with um, the compression that they need while keeping them lit. But what I'd love to do is get in touch with a company like Patagonia or North Face and see if they would like to license something. I'd love to get involved with college football. I think it'd be so cool if you're sitting in a stadium and your team's logo glows and there is nothing that can compare with a seamless knit. It looks different. The quality is unparalleled. Very, very apt and smart. I'm not a football guy too much, but we we live within sight of the Penn State Stadium, so we we went to a game, and it's it's remarkable when they do like white out or they do these like stripes in the crowd. It's like wow, that's an intense look. Imagine a nittany lion that's glowing, and the 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 thing of it is, it's difficult to to execute, right. and that's why we went for the technique patent. Uh. And so we know how to execute it. Wow. And, you know, you, people don't like that pucker at the top of their hat or, you know, the way that the seam feels. And so we've, we've taken care of that. That's very so, cool. So where can people... That's very cool. I would, I would love to talk with you about that after the... Where, where, can, where can people find out about that? And uh, I have to say, 
I, I, I can't leave this one on the table, Randy. The Nittany Lion, like, you got to go get that domain. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, they're not. We, we haven't been selling them yet because we've been waiting for the patent. Because I see, I see who's trying to do what with it. And so unnamed companies have tried to get around the challenge of knitting with reflective yarn by using it to either sew or embroider. But you can't accomplish the same thing. And there's a place for all these products. It's not mine or yours. They're different products. I mean, I wore mine during a snowstorm walking to the Javits Center in Manhattan. So the snow as you're walking towards the Hudson River in Manhattan and that wind, that is a chilling cold. And I was wearing a two-ply hat, which is very thin. And I have a circulatory problem. I was fine. My hair was dry. And the nice thing about using wools is that your hair is totally fine. It's wicking. It's antimicrobial. Yeah, I have that problem all the time. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't been selling yet because we've been waiting for the patent. The website is mypersonalhabitat.com. The idea of the name Personal Habitat is that we all have this personal space that we're trying to maintain our center and our homeostasis. These are products that are not going to disrupt that. They're going to enhance, you know, put it on, get out, go. And we we do have intention once we become, you know, cash flow positive to develop charitable arms around uh, mental health because Part of the the work of this has to do with the direct correlation between getting outdoors and getting moving and taking care of your mental health. It's also the that's so we have to wrap up, but the but I think so. I, I grew up with a father who's not just a runner but an obsessive runner. So always out at strange times of the day, has a dozen stories about diving into ditches and running away from cars, getting hit by things like all these all these things that are just the life of a runner or a biker that's on a public street, it's, it's scary. And I think that the, just the simplicity of the idea, I love it. It's, it's great. Um, yeah. And also children standing at the bus stop. Oh, so this, so it's a premium item because it has to be because of the materials, because we're using certain materials and hopefully that decreases over time. And if we can, you know, if we can mass, create we can get our you know our costs down and it's it's a responsible company the the wool is from a green supply chain um and there's details about that but ultimately bikers cyclists while they need something too all right a glove children standing at the bus stop i don't know you know there's different materials we're going to experiment with that's part of the patent but what you need is to have a critical amount of reflective so that the person who is approaching can perceive quickly enough. And that plays into the technique because you can't just drop a yarn in the middle of a knit to save money, but now it's going to affect. And you have to start with it. So you have to carry this fabric in a certain way when it's used for that purpose. It's not how it would be used for college football. So I'd love to talk with you more about that when we launch. So thank you so much, Amanda. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. Education, violins, music, philanthropy, hats, um, reflective materials. You're a passionate lady with a lot of knowledge and 
thought leadership. And I thank you for coming on to our, our podcast. It's been fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope that uh, I hope you can piece this all together in a cohesive manner. <laughs> Well, thanks, Amanda. Man, what an interview. Interesting. I I feel like I was coming up for air all the time. It's like we, we're going a new direction, then another new direction. And it was really fun. And also there was a, a whole lot of chill to the way you speak about really complex things, which I appreciate. And I think maybe that comes from all those long hours uh, sitting in orchestra rehearsals. So I'm thinking about the hands uh, across the ocean nonprofit that you are executive director of, Amanda, and I, I'm thinking about all the children and the intention, the impact that you're going to create over the years. So I've really, really enjoyed talking about that and talking about where the money comes from in nonprofits and how it all is structured. And then the whole entrepreneurial side of you popped out. And I love that. I love your hat. I love the product. I want to go out and buy it right now. So speaking of music, um, I'll tell the listeners kind of a funny little story. Actually, it's not that funny and it's not that little, but here we go. So Randy one day comes to chat with, with me in the morning uh, online, virtual chat as, as we do. And he says, hey, I got a great name for, for our new uh, offering. Uh, you want to hear it? I said, yeah, sure, sure, tell me. I was thinking it would be something all salesy and businessy like uh, Randy's stuff tends to be. And he says, resonate. And I, I just kind of stopped for a minute, did, maybe did a spit take or something. It's a great name for something. And it, it has to do with, you know, it's interesting. Like my soul, the way I am, the way, to be honest, this interview went, you know, musicians think about resonating. You know, how does that resonate? You know, how does your instrument resonate? How do you resonate? And so we've got this thing now called Resonate. And so if you want to find out more about how to resonate in this world, uh, how to resonate with your customers, how to resonate with your clients, how to resonate with potential investors, or how to resonate with future employees, take a quick trip to resonateengine.com. Don't forget, there's an E at the end of resonate and an E at the start of engine. Resonateengine.com. Listen to our video. Take a quick look. You might be interested. Yeah. And it is a 15-minute long video, but it's nice and chill. So, so I don't know, uh, pour yourself a nice glass of water, kick your feet up, and uh, <laughs> tell us what you think. Resonateengine.com. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody.